0: We do live, as you can see, just in very complex times. Uh, I was born in, the, in uh, 57. Uh, so, uh, I missed the Korean War that my dad fought in. Uh, I saw th- I saw what went on during the, the Vietnam War and, and all of the mess that that was. And, and if you're old enough to remember standing in yards with your friends, uh, with newspapers looking to see if their brother got his number drawn to, he got drafted, remember the draft? Everybody's not as old as I am, so. It's hard being the oldest person here. So, Uh, and I remember all the things that went on there, the atrocities, the the loss of life, and just the things that occurred. And then we, you know, living through the Iraq war, the the mess and the things that we saw there, uh, what went on in Afghanistan, many of you fought in a lot of these places. Um, But this, what we're facing today is very unusual uh, as as we have seen what has developed in the last couple of weeks. I should right now, today, I was supposed to be in the Golan Heights today. Uh, I was supposed to leave last Monday, uh, but for all state of reasons, I couldn't take my group there. And um, I want to thank my uh, fellow uh, travelers. There's 51 of you that uh, were going to go with us. Uh, Thank you for your patience. But we would have been probably around the Golan Heights today uh, up near the Bekaa Valley. I I do a lesson there on modern history where we talk about the Yom Kippur War uh, as we're sending around burned out Russian T-60 tanks from back in the day. That's a very dangerous region. So dangerous we couldn't even go there this time because you're within uh, rifle shot of uh, Hezbollah. Um, But I I know a lot about the area, having studied it a lot of my life, uh, having uh, friends that live over there, uh, on my wife's, her brother. Uh, his, his, my wife's Jewish side of the family, but he, her brother married a young Jewish girl who has family on a kibbutzim uh, in the Arbel Cliffs above the Sea of Galilee. Um, I studied Israel quite, quite in depth over the years because uh, th- these were the Lord's people. He made the covenant of Abraham with them. And so what you're seeing today is um, uh, when you're looking at the why of all of this, uh, just read the Bible. I mean, from the very beginning, the, dev- the devil has tried to erase God's chosen people. Uh, started with Cain uh, killing Abel, he's constantly trying to stop the Messianic King from coming, uh, and then when God calls Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, it's an erasure of the of the chosen people. He's he's been trying to do that, and we see that even today, the call of Hamas to uh, free Israel from the sea, uh, from the river to the sea, uh, is uh, is a call of genocide. If you don't understand that, you need to, because that's what that is. It's ridding them of the land. This is not from God. Uh, this is from the devil himself. Uh, But one day, uh, as we're going to see in the alignment of the nations, which we talked about last week in Ezekiel 38 and 39, as the nations uh, align themselves to attack Israel as prophesied, I don't know about you, but if I was not a Christian, I would get saved just based upon prophetic fulfillment. Because prophetic fulfillment is extremely precise. Because the only way a prophet like Isaiah or Daniel could know about the geopolitical situation of the time before the Christ would appear is God who's outside of time and space to tell him. That's how you know the true prophet. And so we, we live in testy times and we see what the devil is doing, but we also see that God is using this situation to set it up for what Paul has been talking about in the second Thessalonians, his prophecy. By the way, his longest prophecy is here. Uh, God is setting up the, the arrival of the ultimate ruler who will arrive in the middle of all of this chaos to create peace. And what's missing right now is in the region is a politician who knows how to fix this. How do you get Hezbollah and Hamas and all the 22 Arab nations to agree with Israel and sign a peace treaty? And no one has a big idea. Uh, At our church, we used to have a man who was the key negotiator between the the, uh, PLO uh, and the the, uh, Jewish nation. He took me out to lunch one day as he was heading to Israel for a negotiation. Uh, We never have boring conversations with staff here at church with our people. It's always something super interesting. Uh, and as he began to lay out for me what he did and what he was trying to do as a Christian man, trying to bring peace to the region. But we know there's gonna come a man, as Paul talks about the, the lawless man, the Antichrist, who will have the solution, uh, who will bring uh, peace according to Daniel nine twenty four to 27, with Israel, uh, and it will wow the world. That's what you're seeing being set up now is the rival of that man. Um, But as we talked about last week, uh, by way of review, because we had, I don't know, 130 something men at a men's retreat. uh, So you weren't in our church, you were at the church with Pastor Michael. um, We need to review a little bit. So what we've been studying in this chapter uh, is basically a a question that that arises from the text where Paul is going to tell the Thessalonian church, as bad as it is in Thessalonica, your persecution under Roman rule, it doesn't mean you're in the tribulation. That's what false teachers in the church told them. And that's what happens anytime there's some kind of geopolitical mess. You always get the quacks who come out and come up with all kinds of weird eschatology. And so as we look at this, he's going to give them three reasons why the church isn't in the tribulation and never will be in the tribulation. And as he does that, he also is telling you as a Christian how to function in light of what God's going to do as times get tough. So that's a question we've been developing. How? can a Christian be prepared for the prophesied tough times? Because you're living in them now, and it's only going to get more complex. But what am I as a member of the body of Christ supposed to do? So by way of review, uh, he's talked about two things so far. Number one, don't be hoodwinked. Uh, And we talked about in the first three verses, uh, don't listen to the wrong people talking about eschatology when they don't know what it's about. And if you don't remember what eschatology is about, now's the time to remember. Eschaton, the Greek word means... It's the end, the study of the end, the study of the end times. So don't, don't listen to people who don't know what they're talking about because they haven't read the Bible and studied it. Number two, he says, as you prepare for the, the tough times, uh, uh, do be honed in where this is what Paul tells the Thessalonians and tells all Christians, be honed in to studying eschatology. I was going through, I don't even, even know how many filing cabinets I have in my office. Um, I was going through one of my files this week looking for something and I came across a, a, a magazine from like 1972 and so I pulled it out and it's got a picture of Jesus. He kind of looks like a, remember beatniks, like hippies. He's, he's kind of cool looking, long hair and a robe and everything. And, it, and it's a magazine on eschatology. And I had a major flashback to 1972 when I was a freshman in high school. I was studying eschatology then, why? Because I'm excited about Jesus coming back. And so, you know, we're talking about stuff. Be, when he says, be home in eschatology man, I, I, I'm excited about it because I want to know with precision what exactly is going on so I can be courageous and excited about the gospel prior to their Lord's arrival. So Paul tells us in uh, verses six to 12, and that was all just the introduction. You're still with me? Because we have to review because not everybody was here last week, but he's been talking about being courageous because it's easy to fold like the proverbial lawn chair as things get tough, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to speak up. If I speak up, I might lose rank. I'll never be considered to be a colonel. I won't get job advancement. I might lose this. I might lose that, etc. No, Paul's going to tell you in, in tough times that are coming, which are now here, be courageous with the gospel of Christ. And so when we get to verses eight to 12, uh, he has just discussed the removal of the restrainer, which was our sermon last week, the restrainer being the Holy Spirit. That when the Holy Spirit is removed prior to the coming to the tribulation, uh, uh, that's when this lawless one, this Antichrist, will appear. There's a cause-effect relationship. Uh, and since the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, uh, when he leaves, as it were, and I put scare quotes around leave because he's omnipresent, so he can't leave, leave. But he can leave with the entity of the church when we're raptured. So when the church is raptured, which is Paul talked to them about that in the first letter, chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, uh, he then tells them when the restrainer is removed, and by the way, the greatest thing that ever happened to the world is the church. Because the Spirit of God lives in that church. And that's why we should be courageous. We have the answers, so the questions that society is posing, it's in the gospel. And so when we get to verse 8, Paul says this, after the removal of the church. And then that lawless one will be revealed from the, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end the appearance of his coming. Now, he just said, that's a very short sentence. He just summarized eschatology like one-on-one in one little sentence. You're going to have the rapture of the church. Uh, the spirit of God is going to take the church out of here. The, the tribulation shall begin. And when that happens, uh, this lawless one, this antichrist is going to be revealed and God will slay him. But that's a seven-year period. He just squeezed a whole lot in there. And so since he squeezed a whole lot in there, our job is to unpack what he said by adding more meat to the bones. What, what else is he talking about here? So uh, if you go back and study, uh, and you can read my commentary in the bookstore in the book of Daniel. Uh, if you go back and you study Daniel two and Daniel chapter seven, and then and pair that with Revelation 13, which is built on those uh, in Revelation 17, uh, we know that the, that the four final world empires uh, arose just as prophesied and fell. Again, how could that happen unless God told a prophet? And so we study from Daniel 2 and 7, uh, Babylonian was the, the first of those last four empires, followed by the Medo-Persian Empire, defeated by the Grecian Empire under Alexander, which was overthrown eventually by the Roman Empire. And those came and rose just as, as it was said. But when you study Daniel 2 and 7, along with Revelation 13 and 17, the final image that, that Daniel's uh, interpreting for the, the king is a, a final kingdom, it's not the Roman empire, which has come and gone. It's a final version of the Roman empire composed of what he says are 10 toes. And the toes are weak toes because they're iron mixed with clay. So this entire image that represents the final four world world empires is held up by a tenuous set of toes that are gonna be very strong, but very brittle. That will be the kingdom from which the Antichrist will come. And he will come, he will not be a Jew as some propose. proposed. He will come out of uh, the revived Roman empire. I was just in Italy like three weeks ago. I can tell you like what they're doing over there. Have you been there? The whole nation is a giant restaurant. <laughs> I mean, it is. There is Italian food. You just walk a few feet and you can find a restaurant. Outside chairs, cappuccino along the sidewalk, little cobblestone streets, sitting out there having a cappuccino early in the morning. Uh, You know, uh, you wanna do stuff in the afternoon, you find out uh, that whole, I grew up on the uh, border of Mexico and they have the whole concept of siesta. You know what I'm talking about? Well, they got that over there. And it happens in the afternoon, they shut down. I mean, it's like, whoa, what happened? Uh, They're relaxing until this evening. And then we would try to plan dinners at five o'clock. We'd call restaurants. You know, they, they're not open. They don't open until seven. You're like, you gotta be kidding me. I'm an American, I gotta eat at five. And, <laughs> and then you go to these restaurants and you, you, you know, you're waiting for the check. You know, I'm a type A person. I want my food, I want the check, I wanna get out. No, you need to sit and enjoy, dine, fellowship, talk. I'm eating at 30, nine o'clock, hanging out at the restaurant till 10, waiting for my check. It's just like torture. Where's the Antichrist coming from? There. He's coming from there. I mean, I was just at the Colosseum the other day, walking around, going, how in the world did they get all these stones up here? Hundreds of feet. I mean, just seated 80,000 people. How did they do this? And you think about the glory of the Roman Empire, and it is now gone. But but Daniel says, along with John, uh, they're coming back. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse uh, 7, we read this. John, uh, Daniel says, "After this, I kept looking in night visions, and behold, there was a fourth beast. He was dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong. He had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from the, all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up from among them, and the three three first horns were pulled up by the roots before it. Behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boast." Paul says, "After the church is rapture, the lawless one is going to be revealed." How does he know that? Well, he's read Daniel. Daniel 7 uh, prophesies the coming of this particular Antichrist, this lawless man. Uh, as he comes on the earthly scene as a politician who's just a small little horn, a, a little tiny king, kind of unassuming. And what he's going to do, he's going to take out, because he pulls them up by the roots, three members of his 10-nation confederacy, and he does it like instantaneously. And I bet back then they probably wondered, how would that happen? But in our day and age, you could totally see how that could happen. I mean, all it would take is an electromagnetic pulse weapon over Germany, and Germany's gone. You see what I mean? Or one nuclear strike. He's going to attack three of his allies and form his own coalition on his way to being the seat of power. Remember, Paul says, the lawless one's going to be Revealed. He's going to be revealed. We're talking about his revelation. In the book of uh, Revelation, John writes in chapter 13, a little bit more about the lawless one. He says, I stood on the sand sand of the seashore and I saw this beast coming up out of the sea having 10 horns and seven heads. The seashore, by the way, is the Mediterranean Sea, which is just letting you know that the Antichrist comes out of the Gentilic region. He's not a Jew, he's a Gentile. He says, he has 10 horns and on them were 10 diadems and on his head were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear. His mouth was like that of a lion, and the dragon, it's a code word for who? The devil. The devil gave him his power. So where does the Antichrist get his power? From Satan. Uh, he, has great, he has a throne with great authority. And he says, I saw one of its heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. So scholars theorize that the Antichrist, the lawlessness, when he comes... Uh, he will not only wow the world with his erudite understanding of things, his articulation, his argumentation, he will be an amazing politician, but somebody's going to take him out, but then he's going to get like resurrected. He will be like the false messiah. And people will follow him. It says the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon, Satan, because he gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, "Wow, who's like the beast?" Who's able to make war with him? Who can wage war with him? You can't because he has such great power. So John is merely uh, keen on what uh, Daniel already prophesied that the four final world empires on the planet would be the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Grecian, and the Roman, followed by a revived form of the Roman empire that would be on the planet that the the lawless one would oversee. That's going to shock the world when that happens. You know, uh, right now, uh, They're just looking for the politician who's got the answers for peace. Uh, Everybody in our church loves charts because we're in DC. We love organization, don't we? You do a report. Like I had to do a report uh, for the chaplains at the US Army at the Pentagon one time. And uh, you know, I had way too many slides. And so I sat down with the four star general for lunch and said, I gotta give a report to a bunch of general officers. Uh, What should my PowerPoint deck look like? And I showed him my deck and he's like, not like that. So he whittled my stuff down big time so I could go to the Pentagon. But I have just one PowerPoint today. Shocking, isn't it? One. There it is. This tells you on the left-hand side is Daniel's prophecy that the final four world empires will go from really great, like the Babylonian in wealth and power, down to iron mixed with clay. then he says over in chapter seven, the final world empires will be like beasts. They're gonna go from like a majestic lion down to a monster. That'd be the Antichrist empire. And so when you you look at what is prophesied by Paul here, the lawless one, when he's going to be revealed, he's going to be the master over that uh, monster empire that will rule the world. Who's going to inspire him? Satan. So you have the satanic trinity. You have the beast, the antichrist, the lawless one. Satan will inspire him. And then we'll get to the false prophet here in just a second. What's he going to do when he hits the planet after the churches with Christ? He's going to find the peace solution to Israel. It says in uh, Daniel 9:27, he, this lawless one, will make a firm covenant with the many, speaking of Israel, for one week. And in the middle of that week, he'll put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering. On the wing of abominations, they'll come, and he's the one who makes desolate, even complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on those who make desolate. Everything he touches, he destroys. He hates God. When you study uh, Hebrew uh, time dating in that particular prophecy, one week is seven years. So the middle of that week would be three and a half years. What's he do? Creates a peace treaty with Israel after the church is taken out with the restrainer. The strainer is removed. The antichrist is is revealed. He makes a peace treaty with Israel. What's the world waiting for right now? Peace. And it will come through the man who brings false peace. Because in the middle of that uh, tribulation, he will break his peace treaty with Israel. And this is where uh, Dr. Harold Honer, when I was uh, studying Greek under him at Dallas Seminary, uh, he uh, taught us how Ezekiel 38 and 39 that we studied last week, uh, he, he believes occurs at this moment in the middle of tribulation when Israel is attacked from the north and the south. What you're seeing today, the Hamas in the south, Hezbollah in the north, uh, and the, and the uh, Iranians wanting to attack, you cetera, you're, you're just seeing all that prophecy lining up. To occur just as God prophesied. Uh, the only problem is uh, when they go to attack Israel, uh, to wipe them off the face of the planet, they're going to have a problem because they're going to eventually run into the ultimate Jew. You know, his name Jesus, and he's not going to be in a good mood because he's waited thousands of years to deal with the wicked lawless system. Um, It says in verse eight, the lawlessness one, what he's gonna be revealed, God's gonna slay him. So God's gonna slay him when he appears at the end of the tribulation. I don't know about you, but I find great hope and comfort that sin has a termination date. Evil has a termination date. It's the arrival of the Christ. What does Jesus need to deal with the devil and all of his system that he will set up in the antichrist? Does he need tanks? And I know we have a lot of army here that are tankers, so... Does he need tanks? No. Uh, a lot of the air force here. Surely he needs some of our advanced fighter. No, he doesn't need. He doesn't need those. Uh, if you're in the navy, does he need battleships? No, not really. Uh, any submariners here? One. <laughs> yeah, they're all under the water right now, so um, <laughs> he doesn't need submarines. What does it say that? He, what does Paul say that Jesus needs when he comes back to deal with the devil and his entire fault system? What does he need? His word, the breath of his mouth. So when I'm speaking, air is coming out. He just needs his word. So if he can create ex nihilo with his word out of nothing, he can certainly uh, mess with the devil in his system with the word. So I don't know if you've looked at your yard lately, but I'm sure it has leaf issues, does it not? Yeah. Are you addressing them like good Christians should? Like, No? Yeah. So over the last couple of years, I set a goal to cut down every tree in my yard. And I did, except for one magnolia tree. Uh, But I cut down all the other hundred footers. I brought cranes in, I got them out. I'm sitting in my house praising God for how easy it is this year to maintain my yard. And then I realize I have neighbors. (laughs) How easy is it for the wind to blow those little leaves in my neighbors' yards who don't rake them into my yard? Very easy. So what's a Christian to do? Get a backpack blower, echo brand, 200 miles an hour, blow it in there. Or it's a Christian thing to do. Anyway, just saying. Why are we talking about this? Because this is as easy as it is the Lord will deal with the devil. What's he need? He's gone. Exactly what does he do with the devil when he deals with them? Well, read Revelation 19, verse 19. John says, I saw the beast, Antichrist, and the kings of the earth who had allied with him, uh, and their armies, and they're assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So this is at the Valley of Armageddon, the Jezreel Valley. I've been there many times. They, they assemble there to get rid of Jesus and the Jews. Doesn't go well for them. It says, the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. This is the ultimate abode of the wicked. Who are the first two people in the lake of fire? What did he say here? The beast and the false prophet are the first two in there. And how do you know it's a literal place? Because when you study at the end of Christ's millennial reign, the thousand year kingdom, when you get to the end of that and the Lord himself, you know, it throws everyone else in the lake of fire. It specifically says that the beast and the prophet are, st- false prophet are still there in the lake of fire. Once in, you don't get out it's a literal place. And so we have the beast, the ultimate politician. And then John mentions his sidekick, the the religious side, politics and religion. You have the false prophet is there to woo the world and wow the world to worship the beast after the church is raptured. We read... um, according to what Paul says in Thessalonians 2. He says, that is, this is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. It's very interesting when it says uh, his coming, uh, it's the word parousia. Parousia, if you remember, is the word that is used to define the coming of Christ. It, that's that's the word that speaks of his coming. It's the word that is applied to the coming of this false trinity, because the devil can't do anything new. He just copies God and tries to deceive the world, calling them to think that this antichrist is the true Messiah when it's really the false Messiah. And also it says that he's going to be revealed. Well, this is Apocalypsis, the great revelation. This is what it speaks about when Christ comes, he will be revealed, but is applied here in the text uh, to the antichrist who's like the false Christ. How will people uh, follow him? He will have a sidekick who does signs and wonders. These two particular Greek words are very interesting. Signs refers to an event that defies the known laws of physics. Uh, the, uh, I, I found that in my uh, Greek concordance used in John 2, verse 11. When Jesus goes to the marriage of Cana uh, and is hanging out with his family and his mother, uh, and they have a problem at the wedding, they ran out of wine. They ran out of wine. <laughs> And so his mother goes to Jesus, basically tells him, hey, son, uh, there's kind of an issue with the wine. Uh, could you help? What'd he do? You, you know the story? What'd he do? Did he call Italy? And did you guys deliver? No, he, he found the water pots used for ceremonial washing and he turned gallons of water uh, in, into perfectly amazing wine that they said they usually leave the best wine or at the beginning and, and you know, they, they don't produce it like now. The best wine is not given now at the end. It's amazing. If you can turn water to wine, I would say that's a sign that you are not from here. Where was he from? He was from heaven. This is also the word that is used of of Christ feeding the 5,000 men who probably had women and children with them. So easy, 10,000 people. It's the same word used to explain the the miracle of turning five barley loaves and two small fish into enough food to feed 10,000 people. Could you imagine if you were there? This kid's got a sack lunch. What's in it? A five barley loaves. Is it Roman meal? What is it? I don't know, It's just five barley loaves? I mean, okay, we, we got it. It's a couple fish. We can do it. We can feed all these people. Imagine just continually reaching in the bag and pulling out. I mean, how's that happening? How is that sign happening? He's God who creates bread. He's the bread of life. And fish, no problem. He feeds them all. That was to show that he's God among them. Then the word wonder. A wonder is like, leaves you absolutely awestruck. You're like, you have got to be kidding me. So Jesus is in the boat with the disciples. He's asleep. He's down below decks. He's in heavy seas, which I don't know how he was asleep below deck. I've been on seas, deep sea fishing many times in heavy sea. No way you can sleep, but he was. And the disciples up on on deck freaking out, right? Remember? And they're like, Lord, we're perishing. Don't you care? He comes up on deck. What's he do? You read the story? He said three words. This is Bible trivia 101. Peace, be still. What happened? The wind and the sea obeyed him. It was so flat, you could slalom ski. And it's flat. How did that happen? He's God. He says that the Antichrist will have a sidekick who can do signs and wonders. Unbelievable. Satan is allowed through his sidekick to do some amazing things. These two particular words, signs and wonders, are words that were used in the Old Testament to refer to God. God. Signs and wonders. So if you go back to the Old Testament, uh, case in point, Deuteronomy 4, verse 34, uh, you will find both words used uh, in that text uh, in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Uh, here God says, through Moses, has, has there been a God who's tried to make, to take care of himself a nation from within another nation by trials and by signs and wonders? I mean, has there been another nation that has done this, these signs and these wonders? I mean, think about the signs and wonders that God did. He did how many plagues with Egypt? 10, 10, 10. He attacks their entire pantheon. In fact, the last God that he attacks is the water God, Yom, in Canaanite mythology. He divides Yom in half, destroys him. If you can destroy the, uh, uh, that Canaanite God, he's truly God. Talk about a sign, parting water. How about Moses coming before Pharaoh with a, with a staff? And what did God tell him? When you throw that staff down, it may be wood, but once it hits the ground, it's gonna be a serpent. I mean, he does amazing signs. Well, the false prophet will do signs and wonders to convince people that the false Messiah is the true Messiah and, and the world will believe him. How do I know that? Well, because that's what John says in Revelation 13. Notice what he says. I saw another beast. The other one's the politician. This one's the religious side of things. He's coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast, the antichrist, in his presence, and he makes the earth and all those who dwell on it to worship the first beast. That's his job. That's his job. That's his job. Uh, whose fatal wound was healed? He performs great signs so that he may. Here's his first major sign. He can make fire come down out of heaven to earth in the presence of men. Who did that in the Old Testament? Elijah did. He's gonna say, you wanna talk about something that will shock people? On a perfectly clear day, fire came down of heaven based on his word. There's other times when fire came down from heaven. When Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 thought they'd bring their own fire as priests to God and, and put it you know, for worship that day, uh, read the story. God said, I started the fire, don't bring strange fire. Uh, he vaporized them both with fire from heaven. I mean, fire from heaven on a perfectly clear day is a sign of divine activity. So he's acting like Elijah. It says, he will deceive those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling all those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had a wound and a sword come to life. Second major sign. And there was given to him a breath to make, uh, to make the image of the beast uh, come alive that the beast might even speak and, and, and even cause to come as many as don't worship the image of the beast to be killed. So it's either you worship the beast because of the false prophet's word, and because of this, this uh, ability to do miraculous signs, or we, we eliminate you. Now, there's a lot of smart college students in our church, and it's really hard to trick them with AI, because I've had certain parents face AI things, come their way, certain scams and stuff, and it was their college students that told their parents, mom, it's AI, and that's not really me calling you. You know, that, that type of thing. So I highly doubt that the, the, the statue that the beast will build uh, will be like an AI thing. And I don't think it'd be a robot either, because you seen the Transformers? I mean, we're trying, I, yeah, I've seen robots, you know? I started out with Lost in Space as a kid. Remember that? I know, I'm dating myself. I understand. But I also watch the new stuff. I, I highly doubt it's going to be a robot. I mean, what would really wow the world if you had like a stone statue that everybody knew? Well, that's just, that's the beast that, that, that just tells us that's the beast. If that thing came alive, now the word that John uses is not zoe uh, life, but, but pneuma, like pneumatic tools. It's like the word for breath. He'll, he'll give it like breath. Could you imagine if you saw a, a, an inanimate object like shaped in the figure of like the, a man, like the antichrist, actually start talking, like answering your questions. And you ask your wife, are you seeing this? Or is this just me? Uh, no, he's, he's speaking. Uh, this will deceive the many when that thing comes alive. The result will be many will fall down and worship the beast because of the miraculous activity. Uh, note to self if you see miraculous activity and it pulls you away from the worship of the Christ and the worship of the gospel of Christ, it's of the devil. You hear me? Pay very close attention in the times in which we live. Uh, what should saints learn from all of this? Uh, well, wickedness is coming. But that wickedness is going to terminate when it meets the living Christ. He's going to deal with it. Uh, Paul closes out this little section by saying in verse 10, uh, he's going to be coming with all deception, uh, this false man of wickedness, for those who perish. Why are they perishing? Because they did not receive the love of the truth, which in Colossians 1.5, is is, that's the gospel. Uh, to, so they could be saved. And, and for this reason, God will send upon them a, a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they might be judged who didn't believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. This is the age in which we live. You look at a lot of things that people believe today, ideologies, that you cannot reason with them out of the ideology, even though it's logically inconsistent, defies medical evidence, etc. You cannot reason them out of it. They are all about rhetoric. Forget reason. Where is this coming from? When God says, when you reject the truth I've given to you, I will turn you over to your sin and you'll become deluded in your own thinking. This is like Romans 1 all over again, which terminates in the three cries in Romans 1, where Paul says God gives them over to their sin. It terminates at the end of the chapter with the searing of the conscience. So they cannot tell the difference between good and evil. It's a day in which we live. And so that when they stand before judgment one day, all those who reject Christ... And the gospel and love wickedness will stand before him one day and they will be judged fairly by a just judge based on their response to the light given unto them. I'll put it to you this way. It's dangerous to listen to a pastor who teaches the word of God. Why? If you reject it, you're judged based on what you heard and rejected. I mean, God is just. It is a great thing to turn to the Christ of the gospel and have him wash your sin away. He makes you his child. So then it's good to hear somebody who's preaching the gospel. But what should we do in our day in which we live? Courageously point people to the Christ. He is the answer for what our world faces. Uh, May you do it in a a great way, knowing that the lost will be judged by the Lord, the just judge one day. Romans five, I've always loved it. Paul says, God demonstrates his own love toward us that when we were sinners, what did he do? He died for us much more than having been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. I don't know about you. I cleared that question up again back with God in 1967. I'm a sinner, Lord, and I need to be saved. And he saved me. And now I'm looking for the king to come back. And I'm glad that all those I know that have come to him in faith, are we're gonna, I'm gonna see you in the kingdom but we're still looking for that next person to turn to Christ, is that you? Uh, because Paul's very specific. These things are unfolding just as prophesied. Are you paying attention? The king is coming, but he wants you to be in his kingdom when he arrives. You do that by bowing your knee in faith before him. May you do that today. And if you're a Christian, I don't. wherever you were, are, are wherever you work, whatever you do, uh, don't fear, fear. Don't fear the time in which you live. Be courageous for Christ. He'll go before you making the crooked path straight. Why don't you stand? Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity uh, to to look again at Paul's great prophecy. Uh, Some of it uh, is that which we've heard before. Some of it is new uh, to people who have not studied it. Some of it might be over some people's head, might be intriguing. Uh, You know exactly what each person here needs from your good hand, and you're going to give that to them uh, to deepen their faith, to grow their faith, uh, and to also lead them to faith. Thank you for your love for us and that you loved us enough to die and rise again the third day so we could be saved and enjoy heaven that is coming. In the meantime, uh, may we be a great testimony of what it means to be a Christian in the day in which we live. And may we do it with great love and compassion in Christ's name, amen.